0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for uh, coming together during lunchtime. Uh, I see nobody's eating, so that's... Wow, this is really serious stuff. Uh, first, uh, I'm Christopher Lee, uh, uh, I'm, I'm asked to host or moderate this session. Uh, just to let everybody know, uh, please, I will not be able to answer any questions with regards to policies or the Ministry of Health because I've just retired. Uh, but today's uh, Objective uh, of this meeting is to look at uh, how patients with COVID nineteen can be better managed, and with us, of uh, course, is our intensivist uh, from Hospital Suneblo and Hospital Kuala I think she covers a lot of places. Uh, Dr. Shanti Rudra Devi, uh, we all know her very well. Uh, so she will be uh, giving a presentation first, um, and uh, later on, uh, both Dr. Shanti and Dr. Gary Shan from Kota Kinabalu. Uh, will join us as panelists to uh, address some of your questions and and issues. Uh, So without further ado, I think it's okay. Uh, As Dr. Shanti is speaking, we need everyone to mute your microphones, Uh, but make sure you know when it's on because if you say bad things about me, I can hear you. So uh, uh, I have to remind myself first. All right, so without further ado, Shanti, you have the floor. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, very much, uh, Chris, for the introduction.
1: Right, today I'll be talking about two cases. I'm going to be discussing two uh, cases that were in the intensive care unit here in Singapore. Uh, one patient was ventilated with a high mask, and I'll start off with the first case. Right,
0: the first case, a woman, is late delivery hypertension dyslipidemia, but however
1: not on regular treatment he came in on the 15th of March obviously fever for one week we cough and sore throat this is his this is, uh, so basically he came in on the 9th uh, he was symptomatic on the, on the 9th of March and he was admitted on the 15th of March this is his chest x-ray when he came in on the 9th. Uh, sorry, on the fifteenth of March. Okay. Anyway, he was in in ICU. He was put on non humidified oxygen, ten liters per minute via uh, high flow mask. Remained stable in ICU. However, an afebrile but was extremely tachypneic with respiratory rate ranging from thirty to thirty five breaths per minute till about day five of uh, ICU. Saturation was at that time ranged from ninety to ninety seven to ten. He was put on Calitra and Interferon. His input and output was closely monitored, ensuring an. Balanced. Small boluses of crusamide were given intermittently to maintain that even balance. Day six of ICU, he became less echidnick. His respirate was down to 22 to 26, but he had a spike of temperature. Ultras were taken, and he was empirically put on palzocin to cover for a possible nosocomial. Catheter urinary catheter was then removed, and uh, chest x ray did not show new infiltrates, and he was discharged at about day eight of ICU. So, this is his progress in, in the ICU. In day one, when he came into the ED, yeah, he, he was fibride. He was fairly stable, a little tachycardic, but his great respiratory rate was about 35, saturating at about 92 on, uh, on, on 5 liters of base Then And he was referred to as tachypnea. remained fairly stable, as you can see from here, hemodynamically, but he was very tachypneic, right till about day five of ICU. About day six, when he settled. The saturation, his saturation was anywhere between 90, you know, 89 at times, and only at day six it went up to about 96, 97. So, this is his chest x ray in ICU when he was admitted here, doing bilateral lung infiltrate. This was a day four on ICU, right, when, when the infiltrate started to sort of dissolve. Day six of ICU, when he had a new pulse. Of of, uh, infection, and uh, we can see the x ray -ray, -ray clearing. Uh, renal function remain normal despite right human being tightly control of fluid, right of the fluids. Like cells also remain So, you look at what we can learn from this case. The so, indications for early ICU referral I think this is really important. One is acute respiratory distress. Anyone needing oxygen of more than 5 liters to maintain saturation with increased work of squeezing or increasing oxygen. Most patients, despite being distressed, can speak in full sentences, but we can see from them clinically their work of clinic. Mm-hmm. Any patient who is hemodynamically unstable, systolic BP of less than 90, or a mean arterial pressure of less than 25, <coughs> or is definitely an indication, pH of less than 7.3, a CO2 which is going up, or O2 is lactate high. Any patient with severe comorbidity, or at high risk of this duration, should be referred to ICU early. Let's look at some studies that looked at time course for progression of respiratory failure. Right? They seem to appear very rapidly, within 12 to 24 hours. Now, from the onset of symptoms, medium time to develop ARDS is about 8 to 12 days. From this study, from uh, Wuhan, and the mechanical ventilation was between 10 to Days. So, and if you can look at our patient,
2: it was about that time.
1: So you can see he was referred to ICU about day eight because he did not need mechanical ventilation. So day eight is about the time he, from the time he had his first symptom. How much oxygen do we need? We just need to target a saturation of 96%. And we use no humidified oxygen because humidification will result in aerosolization. Usually we start up with nasal cannula, you can go on to simple face mask or high flow mask. With 10 liters of oxygen. So what is the use of non-invasive ventilation in hypoxemic respiratory failure? Current guidelines suggest that it is not recommended due to the high failure rate. Right? It's like any other patient with hypoxemic respiratory. So the possible risk of aerosolization with poor mask is. Given the rapid progression of disease, these patients Will be intubated. We cannot avoid intubation in this group of patients. Now, I know there are a lot of studies. I think uh, showing that there may be a role,
0: if if
1: we use NIV. The caveats would include ensuring patient is in a negative pressure room because of the risk of aerosolization, ensuring an adequate feel with the mask, with your NIV mask. Patient needs to be monitored mostly for worsening respiratory status, You would want to consider early intubation in a controlled setting that means wearing your full PPE and maybe even a PAPR if there is a rapid progressive hypoxia. We do not wait for the patient to worsen too badly. What about the use of high-flow nasal cannula? Now, the two current guidelines by the Australians and the SEC guidelines suggest that it is recommended Hypoxia associated with COVID 19 disease. However, you have to ensure optimal airborne PPE use. patient should be preferably in a negative pressure room and monitored closely in an ICU, not in a setting. Should we have incubated this patient who extremely technique tap- 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 with respiratory rates of 30 to 35 and 2 of 51, especially if you look at day three? Well, the reason this patient didn't get intubated was he was very lucid, he was calm, he was not restless and agitated. He was able to use the face mask as instructor. He was hemodynamically stable. test actually did not show worsening in his face his temperature had settled. And he was being monitored in the ICU. So, the physician was him. We will go on to case study 2. This is a gentleman in Hypertensive, obese. He had a BMI of. He came in on the a uh, he uh, uh, okay. it's okay. It's
3: okay. It's again. okay, sorry. Carry on.
1: Okay. He came in. Uh, he had his complaint started on the sixth of March. With a history of fever, cough, vomiting, running nose, and sore throat. He had been in contact with nineteen positive patients Was admitted three days later to the ward on. The ward he was deprived. The 10th, the very next day, he needed supplemental oxygen to just maintain his saturation. Highly technique his respiratory was about 22 to 24. This is his x ray on admission to the ward. You can see the same bilateral lung incubator patient that I discussed earlier. Three days later, he was referred to IC on the 12th for hypoxic respiratory failure. Short of breath with respirates of 40. It was a sudden deterioration over six hours. He was stable hemodynamically but extremely rapidly and and was immediately intubated in the ward in a negative pressure. We can see from here the third to the eighth, six days of illness. On the seventh of 10th, he was in a war, medical ward, and then he was admitted at day 11 of illness. ICU. So he was transferred to ICU following incubation at about 1 pm at the 12th. This was his ventilatory settings that we put him on. He was at a tidal volume of 6 ml per kilo, a plateau pressure of less than 30 His rate was between 20 to 22. He had a very high peep of 12, about 2 of 1. His PF ratio was less than 100. This was his x ray when he was admitted. Um, on the 13th, 12th uh, to ICU, day one of ICU admission, the infiltrates He was sedated with fentanyl so propofol, hemodynamically remained fairly stable, not needing any vasopressors. His urine output was good with 0.8 and per hour, but his TF ratio remained less than he guided with 2 He decided to the patient seven hours after Even nine hours of cloning, his PF ratio only increased to for a total duration of the hours. In the IQ, monitored his input and output very closely, from even to negative balance. His renal function did deteriorate, with creatinine uh, with increasing up to 332, however, he never required dialysis. By day four, we could wean him off. Step with pressure support, he was in But after that, it became very difficult to wean be because of restlessness and agitation. We had to use you know, a lot of sedation on him and antipsychotics to calm him down. We were able to extubate him on day 7 to high flow mask, but he still remain a little bit tachypneic. It was only at day 10 we discharged him to the By the time we discharged him, his renal function continued to improve and his creatinine was down to 220. his presentation here you can see
4: the trial.
1: actually subsequently another spike of temperature here. He always remained stable, never needing any vasopressors. pressure. Incubated on say, on the day he came into IQ, so, at that point. BF ratio of 93. After proning him his PF ratio actually improved and it remained above 200 after that Wow. On day four, extubated. This is day five of ICU, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was already changed to CPAP. All negative, his white cells actually remain normal throughout his day. This is day 10, sort of improving, and, uh, and by the time he did, we discharged him, uh, this, this is what the X ray looks like. So, what can we learn from this case? I think we all know that these patients go into ARDS, and we need to have lung protective strategy when we are ventilating these patients. These are the things we do when we mechanically ventilate. Tidal volume of 4 to 8 mL. of 8 Whether you use pressure control or, or, or volume control, the tidal volume must be kept between 4 to 8 mL. Maintain a plateau pressure of less than 30 centimeters of water. You would need to have, because you are using such low tidal volume, Respiratory rate has to be anywhere between 16 to 20 24 to prevent respiratory acidosis. Accept permissive hypercapnia and in these patients. Use a higher PEEP, anything more than 10. Feet. Some places advocate even 15 centimeters of water on admission. But just be aware of barrel trauma if higher peaks are used. Prone position. Now, early proning is advocated for severe AR as a PF ratio of less than 115. That ventilatory induced lung injury is very common in patients who are not synchronous with the ventilator. So, assess for synchrony with the ventilator. Look for signs of breath taking, double triggering, you can see it on your waveforms on your ventilation and other ventilatory alarms. So, we need to titrate your to to allow this ventilator synchrony by giving deeper sedation. And in some patients, if deeper sedation does not help, then you would need have continuous neuromuscular blockade for at least 12 to 24 hours, if not more. Even if they are not prone Of course, you've got to rule out other causes of ventilatory synchrony, and this is some of them. Restlessness and agitation. Right? There are many causes of restlessness and agitation. You might have to treat the underlying cause, but use antipsychotics like chlorpromazine, risperidone, can be used to treat restlessness and agitation. Bronchospraism. So, Sorry, this is a mistake there. Eh? You need to use bronchodilators. We are only using uh, 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 HMEF, which is a viral filter. You um, may need to change the filter on a daily basis. When changing, put the ventilator in a standby mode plan ETT because it is an aerosol-generating procedure. But remember, caution when camping ETT if patient is breathing spontaneously than those on support. pressure interaction. We all need to be aware of, of drug interactions between the drugs we use in ICUs, ATIS, your sedatives, your LG6, propofol, on and all those patients on COVID 19 therapies like Eletra and, and hydroxychloroquine. So, this is a good site to look at for drug interactions of the drugs that we use and the COVID
0: 19 therapies. Thank you very much. Uh, you're right, there's certainly a lot of uh, the points that we can take from here. Yeah. Uh, I wonder whether Gibi Shan has joined uh, the meeting? I feel funny asking is Gibi, are you there? Queen yeah. E2? Queen yes. E2. Twin okay, while well, waiting for it, we we'll get off into some technical issues.
3: Hi, Giri here. Yes, Giri, thank you very much. We hear you loud. The word is loud. Um, As I mentioned just now, today's forum is looking at how we can learn how to manage patients better. Uh, I know some of the questions there are related to testing and policies on testing etc. So, perhaps if this is not the right forum to do this, and the people who can provide that information won't be on this forum anyway. So, uh, I apologise. I'm going to move to those questions well. Alright. Uh, I'm going to ask, uh, both, both, I'm going to ask both Dr. Shanti and Dr. Giri to to take the questions first. Right? And I'll direct it to either one of them. Perhaps Shanti uh, and Giri have to go off for a while. This uh, might be issues. Um, I'll just read off the second question. For example, there are reports regarding purely non-respiratory. Presentations such as GI symptoms. How should we screen COVID in these cases? Um, perhaps I'll just answer this myself. Is it okay, Shanti? You can add on if you wish. Uh, we all know that uh, most of the symptoms are pretty non specific. I think fever has been counted as one well, of the more common ones, but really they are quite varied. Respiratory symptoms, of course, are the ones that we are very aware of. But there have been some cases presenting with GI symptoms, in particular diarrhea and vomiting, even though. And, and, um, and we know that uh, there can have been cases presenting with diarrhoea even though the number of patients with uh, COVID-19 having diarrhoea is certainly significantly less than what we saw with SARS. Uh, Clearly, I think it's important currently, if you look at the contact history and travel history, there are still issues with travel history. Of course, now the new the outbreak new of you know, uh, COVID now is really in Europe and in the States. Uh, but, I think all of us are aware that as more and more community transmission occurs, it will be more difficult. Uh, that is why I think it's important, even though we are on a COVID platform here, to remind our staff at the COVID was to be careful not to take shortcuts as far as PPE and procedures are concerned. I think equally important, if not more important, is to remind our colleagues who are working on the non-COVID sector to be, to be careful as well. So we may have, have to look at much more community wide uh, basis uh, to prevent our healthcare staff Right, that's all uh, I guess I can say about that. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, okay, we'll skip the testing side. I just suffice to say, I think we all heard the KPK mentioning this uh, a couple of days ago. Give uh, the Ministry of Health time, and I think, uh, as expected, uh, we hope that we will see more testing available time next week and by April. So we, we hope we can address this in a better way in the weeks to come. So let them work on it. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's fair to ask a question of Shanti or Kiwi. For lab technicians exposed to blood specimens of COVID-19 while running specimens via open method, what is the risk of transmission? Uh, anyone who has any lab person anywhere who wants a I feel the incapable of, or not qualified to answer this question. But I think everybody should be working uh, on a biosafety uh, cabinet level, and this should not happen because the risk in the land is also significant, perhaps to say. And if you're working on an open system, I think you do need to talk to your topology bosses to see how we can address this. Uh, of course, these are uh, extremely important Okay, I'm going to move on. Uh, to the next management question. Uh, someone talked about, uh, of course, we know that hydroxychloroquine has been counted a lot now lately. Uh, we all know that the data is still very preliminary. Uh, perhaps, Chucky, I know some of chats have been using a bit of hydroxychloroquine now. Uh, I'm not sure how far it has gone, but certainly I'm sure we have seen some cases. So, I was wondering whether you can give some comment about your preliminary.
1: on the try and interferon is also added when they come into IC. I don't think oxychloroquine or because it's a
3: combination of three or one I I I think so about I can't manifest. I I know I've been unfair to you uh, no one can answer that question in a triple way at the moment. The only way is to move forward in uh, as Anthony Foundry said clearly a couple of days ago it has to be a randomized or trial. But it's challenging time style. We may not always have to set up the setup to do a randomized control trial right off the bat. But clearly, I would encourage all the ID, ICU teams around the country who are managing COVID cases if you are considering using any of these newer medications, therapies, document everything as much as you can. At least you get a case series of stop stop. Uh, and perhaps uh, nationally, uh, we can put together. Put together a randomized formula of how we, the drug can be uh, So, okay, so uh, I'm not going to talk about
1: hydroxychloroquine anymore at the moment because we're really in very, very early days. Right? Ah, okay, the so question to Shati how to excavate this patient? you see the yes. question? Yes, yes, I do. Okay, uh, just I go on to activating the patient, I just wanted to talk about the vitamin C that was also asked just now, uh, the use of vitamin C. Uh, I don't think there have been any studies done on the use of vitamin C in these patients, so um, so maybe not vitamin C yet. There may be studies coming up. With regards yeah. to with regards to extubating of uh, patients, uh, extubation is also considered aerosol generating. So when extubating these patients, what is advocated is always a negative group uh, the APR. Uh, but in reality, no we do have the APR and negative pressure We just need to wear your full PPE, which means your N ninety five, your She, everything. And people are getting to be very innovative now on how to execute these patients because we do not have negative pressure rooms APR. So a lot of them if you look up they're actually using plastic bags over the patient the things to, to help during the excavation period Maybe we that here in Sunai Blue we are using full C PR because we do have the. Sandy Shanti, 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 I, I think uh, what you've said is very important but unfortunately I've
3: been told uh, it's not the audio is not coming right clearly from your end. Could you speak closer to the micro right? repeat That whole again story Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Can uh, okay, okay, you hear uh, me now? Is it better? Yeah, I can hear you better. Uh, my colleagues here, hearing is not very good. They asked you to speak slower. Okay. Uh, and, thank you. All right.
1: With regards to, to extubation, okay, how do we extubate our patients here? You know, extubation is an aerosol generating procedure. And so it's best to extubate these patients negative pressure rule uh, with full uh, ppe including maybe a papr but in reality a lot of places do not have papr or even negative pressure rule. so I, I would say that when we extubate these patients we would perhaps extubate them with uh, using full papr uh, there are some innovative ways where people use uh, you know a plastic bag i you know a huge plastic bag which over the patient. You know, you look up the tube, uh, people are trying to create all these innovative uh, uh, you know, ways of how to extubate the patient since we do not have PAPR
3: or uh, negative pressure. All right, okay. Uh, all right, thanks. Thanks, Anthony. Okay. Uh, just to quickly check is Giri back online or do we you know? Giri, are you, are you here? If you are here, say something, all right? We're going to move on, all right? Shanti, well, you are the one uh, looking at the next one. Would you recommend all patients going for emergency and semi emergency ops to undergo COVID screening? I know this issue has been brought up, especially in some of the private hospitals as well.
1: Um, I think you have to go back to the symptoms whether the patient is actually symptomatic or not. If we, if we actually start screening every single person coming for emergency, I think the labs will be overwhelmed and those who really need screening will not get their screening done in time. So I think we have to go back to the basics. What are the indications of screening? If there's an indication, screen them by all means. If there's no indication, do not screen them. That's what I think.
3: Yeah, uh mean based currently with the current testing situation, I think that's a reasonable approach. obviously if testing becomes super accessible everywhere, it's something that we can do in you know, fifteen minutes for every single patient. Of course by all means I would agree screen everyone because going to OT getting living gas and everything, of so course the risk is there so for everyone to But I think we have to look at what we have and do what we have now. Uh, so I think not be defensive, but around the world, everyone is struggling to uh, We just have to do the best we can and make it as safe as we can. now But things will get safer as 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 more things come into play. All right, let's move on. Uh, now, the question by Nothing: uh, What precaution measures that should be taken by the medical team during incubation uh, Obviously, it means emergency incubation where let's say not. You and the NST response to the
1: patient. Uh, advice? I would strongly suggest that the
3: patient be actually
1: referred to the NST for intubation. Every guideline uh, about intubating these patients, because it's an aerosol generating procedure, full PPE needs to be used. We ask the person most competent in intubating. To intubate these patients so it must't be somebody junior intubating them um, because the risk is very high so i I would urge that you know if, if you think the patient is deteriorating you must have some understanding with your anesthetic colleagues that they will come into I'm very sure they will come in to help with these patients because they are trained to do that uh, thank
3: you Uh, I think clearly, at least definitely the two cases you have presented, um, Mm. the underlying theme of how closely the people on the water, the medical traps or the IE traps are working with the ICU people, it has to be almost meaningless. And what you said uh, just now, which I want to highlight, is you need to create deterioration, pick up deterioration early. And that's, I think, one of the key messages from Shangri's recommendations as well. Pick it up early and bring them in early. It is a false call. Even if it's a false call to me, it's okay. Bringing it is, after assessment, they go okay, and then back up again. Because I think when uh, emergency happens on the ward in the general ward, it is not good for the patient and it's not good uh, for the staff as well. Uh, so I think that uh, important to have that uh, good, strong relationship between the two, the two teams. There. Right. Um. That's
4: okay. Oh, that's okay. I'm um, giving here. Yes, Yeah. Yeah, if I could just jump in on a couple of things there. Um, also, sure. I think mm-hmm. that there that, that, that is concern, um, there's differences between patients who come in with a definite PUI criteria or patients on, on, on who's been diagnosed with COVID-19. So, for patients who are diagnosed with COVID-19, you sort of have a feeling now on when they deteriorate. So, usually it's between sort of day five from most I mean, of day seven from illness, so I mean, as clinicians, you'll be picking up. Um, hopefully, you're picking up deterioration early, and how you look at it's three different ways. Are looking for um, difficult um shortness of breath, so to speak. Um, asking them for exertional shortness of breath, counting respiratory for one minute, um, and obviously looking for um, saturation. Um, and, and this patient in this sort of critical period from day seven to day ten. Um, you'll be having teams seeing them regularly, so this sort of shortness of breath or, or, or deterioration can be picked up early. Um, and this where um, communicating with anesthesia colleagues would be really helpful, and most hospitals are doing that, so um, that patients who need um, intubation are intubated in a controlled manner in the ICU, uh, where everybody is in appropriate PPE when intubations are done. Um, And I think this is something we would want to um, educate our younger doctors, Um, um, and obviously, particularly in in, in centers which have experienced managing COVID. I'm sure this is already being done. Right. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Yes, I
3: agree. Uh... Okay. uh... Giri. Giri? Uh, apparently, they lost a the bit of your, your your answer. Could you just okay. quick quick one summarize? <coughs> okay. Okay. Um, so we know from
4: experience now, or we know from literature now, that patients deteriorate um after the first week of illness. Um, and this is where perhaps um, centers which are managing patients with COVID um look more for uh, symptoms of deterioration, for example, exertional shortness of breath, um, objectively counting respiratory rate for one minute, and obviously looking at saturation. And this is the time you probably want to do reviews a bit more regularly. So patients with deteriorate are picked up early uh, and managed in the appropriate care well early on. So there's no sort of crash intubation that has to be done in the ward. So you want to get these patients to ICU early so that your patients are intubated. No the
3: matter, they need to be
4: intubated.
0: Okay. All right. Thanks.
3: Uh, thanks, uh, Yuri. Okay, I'm gonna move on to the next question. All right. Uh, the next question is: If a SARI patient is first tested negative for COVID, but continues to show patterns of decreasing ALC, increasing CRP, and the like, uh, is there a role for repeat tests for COVID? Um, any one of you, Shanti? Uh, Yeah, that
1: probably is a, I think that's a probably a goal a for repeat test. It depends the it depends at, at what day he has come in as well and things like that. So, perhaps a repeat test, you know, will just confirm things because he would be worried if, if he, he actually deteriorates that. I'm not sure. Giri, what do you think? It's all For patient? Yeah. It's important Is I mean, basically here,
4: you're having... Patients who have acute respiratory illness with a un- sort of unknown diagnosis, so to speak, um, and if you have a diagnosis which is established and the patient is getting better, and then you have a negative result, that's more reassuring. But if the patient continues to deteriorate curing um, and you don't have a diagnosis, I will definitely
3: I repeat a uh, test. To... My opinion would be yes, I would consider doing a repeat because, as we you know. Uh... Testing is 700% if that's how the, the sample was taken. Uh, and clearly, I think in the process of a few days of medication, and we still haven't found an alternative diagnosis, and and the picture continues to fit what we see in COVID. I think the, that that investment should be repeated. So right. Okay. Uh, a quick question on beta interferon. Uh, I know that locally we have combined uh, interferon together with. Uh, perhaps, Yuri uh, uh, or Shakti, both of you, uh, what are your opinion about continuing using beta interferon?
1: I think the evidence for any of the drugs used currently is
0: not very strong, but
1: uh, we are using yeah. uh, I, I don't think the evidence is uh, very strong
3: in it's used. Have you all seen any uh, significant
1: adverse effects with either interference thus far? <coughs> no, not not yet. But you know, because they are on a whole lot of other drugs as well, for us, they are on Calitra and they are on hydroxychloroquine. It's difficult to really say they're I think
3: that's probably the. Whatever we try now, we all know that we don't have strong evidence. But the evidence will get stronger over time. And I know Kalitra's mm-hmm. light has become dimmer uh, because of some studies showing that it did not make that much of a difference. Among um, mm-hmm. ID people, we are very comfortable with Kalitra, we use it for tons and tons of it. So I guess we you know what to predict, what can go wrong. And with, uh, the theorem as well as the, in our armamentarium for quite some time, we know how to use it and what we expect to find in terms of sound effects. But I think still better drugs. Who so are not doing really well, we literally throw everything at them. Uh, but let's hope we continue to collect data so that over time uh, we have some documentation of how our treatments are moving. Alright, I'm going to move on. Uh, uh, this is uh, anonymous. Okay. Um, yes. Now, we all know that, yes, that yes, on the use of LMA? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, LMA, Yeah. Somebody asked a question on
1: LMA for for the purpose of. COVID. What's the question? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, Shanti, Oh this issue. I I'm not sure the use of LMA in. What context? I didn't really see the question, but uh,
0: yeah.
1: So I think, I think most of the time, I mean, if you really can't intubate a patient, that's so why it must be the best person intubating a video scope probably to be available when uh, intubating these patients, uh, and, and will then not be able use a, um, an LMA. Because if you use an LMA to intubate, uh, to ventilate the patient, you have to come up with an NB or an At the end of the day. So if an LMA is used and you have to back the patient you will have to use a viral filter together with your, your back mouth mask to, to slowly back the patient because it's really going to be aerosol generated. Put in a, a I mean, uh,
0: got. To, uh,
4: yeah,
1: I think if you you put in an an LME, then you, you you it is going to be difficult. I think uh, to after that you have to think about how are you going to secure the area even if you put in an LME. Are you going to take him to theatre at that point of time, or what are we going to do? So your your
3: next step needs to be there as so. well. Okay. Uh, okay, um uh, this is addressed to you, so my job is minimal here. Uh, when will be the optimal
0: time to start calitra and Interferon? Uh, I know that this is started by the IVP, so, uh Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> I actually,
1: um, all our patients come from the ward with yeah. Kaletra and Interferon. By the time they come to us, they have had three or four days of Kaletra and Interferon already. Um, so they are starting that I believe at seven day eight of of illness or if they see somebody who is
3: deteriorating. Am I right,
1: Giri? I think Giri would be a better person to ask this question. Yeah, Giri,
3: you please tell us our our levels of care. Go
4: ahead. Um. So, so I think what what we're we'll trying to do from an ID perspective is categorize these patients. Um. So there's several categories, so category 1 is just basically an asymptomatic patient, category 2, mildly symptomatic, category 3, uh, the symptomatic with pneumonia, uh, uh, without oxygen requirement, category 4, with oxygen requirement, category 5, then ICU care. Um, so uh, what this, this, this is based on what we know at the moment. Obviously things might change as we learn more about the disease and learn more about Therapies that come on. Um, so at the moment, what we do is for patients with category two, for example, they are mildly symptomatic, we tend to try, start hydroxychloroquine. For patients with category three, with a pneumonia, mm-hmm. if they have persistent fever or dropping uh, absolute lymphocyte count, um, we add on caletra. Um, and obviously, in category four, I already have caletra. And if they need ICU care, uh, they are put at either interferon or ribavirin. But I have to be again. Um. Be absolutely um, clear here. This is based on a lot of anecdotal evidence from um, the, from SARS and from MERS. Um, and it's not randomized controlled trial evidence as we have at the moment. Um, so this is what we are doing at the moment. Things might change. In fact, as soon as next week, if you have better better trial information. So um, so I'll just you know let everybody you know from a clinician perspective just keep up to date in entire piece because things. Change so fast, and, and, and therapies might long-line the change as well.
3: Uh, right, thank you, Yuri. Uh, um, there are 99 nine or more now questions, so uh, I, I'm going to take the liberty as a moderator to, to run through mm-hmm. or avoid some of them, not because we don't have to answer, just too many. Right? Uh, there also one question just now about using nebulization uh, for patients. Uh, with COVID, uh, I'll just quickly answer. Dr. Shanti has mentioned uh, try very hard not to use ventilator, obviously because it's uh, aerosolization of of of, uh, of the blood. Uh Clearly, use an whenever possible. Okay. Uh, the question just now, you very come. Okay. The, the, the question was the, uh, for patients with COVID, or oh, what is the the about trans enzymes, for example, we uh, see cases that uh, they have been high or raised enzymes. Um, maybe, Evie um,
4: first. All right, so it's not a common problem that we see for patients who are sort of asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic. That's, that's a given. I think most large majority of patients are. 8 to 15 mildly symptomatic. Um, then you have the patients who are critically ill. Um, and by then, they're probably on a whole load of medications which also can cause transaminitis. Um, so we do see patients who are critically ill with transaminitis, uh, but it's usually because of a multitude of factors. Um, we know the, the fact that some of them, because of, for example, have a syndrome which is. Beginning to be recognized as a kind of relief syndrome, which can cause a whole multitude of organ failure, transaminitis, AKI, and things like that. Um, So, trying to discern um, each related pattern from drugs with cross transaminitis is difficult sometimes. Um, So, yes, we do see, and yes, it's usually in the patients who are more ill um, requiring ICU care. I'm not so much in the patients who are uh, is this interactive, symptomatic.
3: Okay, uh, so just quickly recap what Giri has said. COVID or SARS CoV 2 now, uh, it's not in, uh, a bug that particularly just attacks the liver. Uh, and if the liver involvement is there and we the raise transaminitis, you have to think of maybe some of the drugs that we have given, perhaps. Plus as part of a multi organ issue, that later part of illness and everything actually goes up. So if you someone comes in
1: Patient, you know for patient to be discharged from icu even if the x ray doesn't look you know very very clear but clinically the patient is stable patient
3: Uh, Here's a question to Shanti, and I understand because intubation is always a risky procedure for, for the staff. But the question is uh, I'm going to read it. Hi, Dr. Shanti. Any strict infection measure in your experience managing COVID patients, uh, is it different compared to other hospitals? Uh, what is being practiced now in Singapore? Shanti. Um, yeah. I think. Um...
1: Most places, we know that infection control is of extreme importance when managing these patients with COVID. So it has to be full PPE, and all donning and doffing of PPE should have been done prior to this. That means your infection control link should have come up to you to go through the steps of donning and doffing of PPE. I think that's
0: extremely
1: important. So in our hospital, when I was in HKL, we went through these steps a couple of times to ensure that everyone knows how to don and doff. And then remind them when they are reviewing patients who are COVID-positive in the ICU, they also need to wear their full PPE, remembering how to don again before going in and doff. I think that's extremely important. There needs to be enhanced uh, cleaning of, of your all these high touch areas aware of little little things when you are in the icu such as you know the pens that i use so just keep it for one particular patient do not share these things so they are small but important things uh, when you are talking about infection control there are small but many things that you have to remember when you talking about infection control in the icu so it's easy if you have a negative pressure room or a single room with an empty room but if you are managing covid patients in an open icu a little bit more different, so you have to be very careful about infection control
3: you must care, take care of your healthcare workers as well. Uh, Thank you, I'm going to add a little bit, since we brought up the issue of the infection control and, and the staffing. Uh, I think all the heads of service uh, in their at the respective hospitals, would agree with me. At the end of the day, uh, it's how the guidelines are there most times, all the PPEs we need are there. Uh, and the weakest link is also how well we comply to it. Uh, the reality is this. Uh, there's a lot of young doctors um, are being sent in the COVID wars uh, because it's affecting the entire country. Uh, and uh, I think all of us have concerns about that. Uh, so I think it's important for the head of service in uh, various sectors, especially in the general ward, to spend a lot of time Make sure our junior officers are able to comply and are taught how to comply. Because it takes just one person to get infected. And the next group of people that he or she infects will be one and their and number two, their colleagues that are working with them. This we learn in SARS. Uh, as Dr. KPK mentioned yesterday or today, uh, how often all the healthcare workers who have been infected, they have been infected either through yeah, social yeah. activities going for the and weddings and also infecting each other in their own hospitals. I think we must not take it unreasonable. This is something we have to be aware of. But my fear is this we are only in a couple of months of, of COVID 19. Over the next few weeks or months, our staff will end up. With two possibilities. Number one, things get fatigue and tired, and therefore they take things for so granted. Things that were important to them initially become less important to them because they do it every single day. And they may see nothing happening, and therefore we all might get a bit nonchalant. The other thing is, as things get worse, uh, they get uh, uh, scared and therefore uh, uh Not willing to work in in the in the hospitals in the settings that we talked about. So I think it is important. Therefore, the leaders on the ground, and and I'm sure many of them are listening today. I think we must make sure we play our role as leaders and and maintain their morale, maintain their confidence in doing this. Otherwise, you know, infection control is only as good as what is on the paper. What's the point? Okay, that was my little speech and my sermon. Sorry about that. Let's move on. I think the next two questions Shanti has already answered, so I won't repeat that. You don't have to wait for chest x ray clearance for discharge. The main thing is the two negative samples, usually four hours apart. Now, this question I want to bring up because uh, there's some form of testing available. As we know, our diagnosis is based on the real time PCR test, which is a lab based test. Uh, Some kids, some Uh,
2: th- thanks, Datuk. Um, the, the majority of uh, the pediatric uh, admissions so far has been quite uh, asymptomatic, and uh, most of it is actually not related to the underlying infection per se. And uh, hence, I think the use of collateral and interferon in this population is actually wa- first not warranted. Even if they develop symptoms, I think uh, there is uh, very minimal data in the uh, literature now regarding its use. Last. Most of it is actually in the adult population.
3: Okay. Uh, that's why you see is it still looking very young and very relaxed. <laughs> uh, keep that keep it that way. Uh, but it's obviously right, the elitor interferon even in the adult population is it's still anecdotal in my mind. And for peace, uh, because of the number of cases, it's so much less uh, the experience is even less. Let's hope it remains that way. Okay, let's uh If there are any burning questions, want to put in now that's a good time because we might wrap things up in the next uh, ten minutes or so. All right. Uh, okay. Coming uh, here about CRP, something that we do frequently nowadays. Uh, you know, it's not specific, but Dr. Shanti, uh, how do you use CRP in, in regards to COVID uh, nineteen's uh, disease severity?
1: I think we we, we know that. Increasing CRP levels is associated with uh disease, uh, increased uh, severity of injury, lung injury. So if you, you start monitoring uh, your CRP, yeah. if you have the baseline and you see it increasing, uh, then you just be aware. It may reduce the secondary infection, so look out for secondary infection, but just don't use in CRP alone to decide to start I think look at all the other clinical parameters, temperature, white cells. And if you look for chest x ray findings if there's anything chest x ray to start actually And so, what are the common uh, organisms in your ICU uh, before you start the antibiotic? Uh, thank you, uh, I think there is
3: And such, uh, can I get uh, both of them here to answer that because they have some experience? Okay, sure. Um, so I mean, for for
4: we, for me personally here at least uh, in Sabah, we don't have experience as of yet. But if you look at literature, what has been said is um, the transmission is usually not a very natural transmission, but usually because of close contact after the mother has baby um, after delivery. Um, And even then, that's a small number of uh, uh, cases which have been reported. Um, So I think we're still learning about uh, transmission in in this group of uh, patients. But as as we know, um, uh, as now, as we know now, as information we know for now, um, there's no strong correlation for perinatal transmission. And it's more because after that, um, the baby is born and is close contact with a
3: person, which
2: is positive for COVID-19. Uh, okay. Can I ask Dr D. Yeah, the Tumai team he has some experience uh, with Dr. D. Uh Hi, uh, th- thank you, uh, Dato. So, um Buloh is the uh, designated um, hospital to uh, accept uh, mothers with COVID-19 and uh, who are pregnant. So, we do have a consensus among the uh, obstetricians and also the neonatologists. On what is the uh, perinatal management and also the postnatal management? Uh, there's only been one reported case of vertical transmission from the Chinese cohort, which uh, wasn't very clear on whether it was, you know, uh, acquired actually perinatally or actually the through horizontal transmission postnatally. Uh, anyway, in Bolo uh, at the moment, uh, most of it is actually done through cesarean section. Uh, this is the agreement by the uh, obstetric team, and uh, if Mother is already in advanced stages of labour. Then full PPE, including PAPR, must be used during the delivery. And uh, so far, uh, all deliveries have been uh, okay, and there's no neonatal uh, uh, who, no who has actually got the uh, infection postnatally. And uh, in our cohort, uh, we are actually uh, at the moment uh, keeping the babies away from the breast milk and. Uh, isolating them from the mother. This is in contrast to some of the other guidelines which are found uh, especially in the RCTCH which actually allows some forms of uh, skin to skin and also uh, breast milk. So uh, at the moment um, as far as we we know that the uh, placental swabs and also the uh, what we call it the breast milk swabs has been negative. Okay. Uh, Thank you.
3: Uh, any of the obstetricians there or? No at the moment. Okay. Uh, thanks. thanks. Uh, let, let's hope there are not that many pregnant mothers with COVID, but yes, it might come. Okay, I'm going to wrap things up pretty really soon. Uh, there are a lot of questions here. the that are really getting caught now. But uh, I'll just try to address two before we call it a day. Uh, what Sari patients are screened for COVID now? Uh, in the past, uh, Sari, we had a Sari surveillance, so not every Sari was tested. Because we felt initially Ministry of Health felt that there were not. Unless we want to detect the whether there were any unlinked cases. So uh, they were testing was done by surveillance. But now SARI uh, sorry patients are being provided testing. Now, if testing is not yet fully accessible or fully or easily available, do we select what type of sorry patients should be screened for COVID? And let's get me, let me be clear. I'm all for screening everybody with with SARI Surely, no question. But in case we do not have enough cash let say we still cannot fulfill that need, what type of variations would we speak for COVID? Perhaps, uh, Doctor you went for lunch. ready. <laughs> you, the- the- you? you,
0: know.
3: ready? you. for yep. lunch already. Uh-huh. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah yeah all right all right so i mean i
4: think for sari patients would be basically i mean I, I completely agree with that so um we would like we would obviously like to screen more sari patients all sari patients for for covid-19 um but i think for, for practical purposes um, we'll have to look at sari cases which does not have a good explanation what that condition is caused by that be one um, you also want to look at uh, links to clusters which perhaps you know but don't fall under the category of PUI and number three healthcare workers that means implications when it comes to healthcare workers Say if a case um, is not sort of is unclear and you have people exposed you would really want to know what the diagnosis for the particular patient is Particular patient, obviously, you want to screen. But moving on, I think, um, once you start losing the epidemiological link for for patients with PUI, this is where you you sort of want to look at your side cases a little harder. You want to know what your heart spots a little better. um, And possibly, if possible, I think hospitals should have um, sort of pneumonia wards or pneumonia cubicles. Um, where there's enhanced precaution, uh, PPEY, uh, for healthcare workers when these patients come in. Um, and then, if you're not getting better for 24-48 hours, these patients probably have to be, um, and don't have a good diagnosis, you want to look at what else is there, and probably why you want to screen them for COVID-19 as well. I think that should be a concentrated effort for most hospitals to have wards where you can put patients with pneumonia together, and healthcare workers who are taking care of these patients with pneumonia uh, have enhanced PPEs in this ward, uh, being uh, a gown, um, gloves, a mask, and, and perhaps a face shield. And if, if they're doing aerosol generating procedures in this particular ward, perhaps you won't look at wearing N95 mask at that, at that point. Uh, quickly, uh, Yuri, can you address the, the You're seeing the
3: question. They're obviously looking in from the white count and the list of that count. Can you quickly give a quick
4: answer to that? Uh, really so usually patients you can... who come in from the community would have a viral like pneumonia. That means who have a low total white, a low absolute lymphocyte count. Those are patients you absolutely want to look at, um, uh, even if they don't have a link to any particular clusters. Um, those are patients you absolutely look at and um, do uh, COVID nineteen testing
3: for them. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks. We're going to move on now. Uh, okay. I am being careful here because I'm, i might be picking the last question. So uh right. Okay, the same question comes up. Can we go up quickly? Let's take one more. Uh something the same. Okay. Uh I apologize. I some of the Kalitra microcycloprin questions because really we do not have strong answers to, to give you. Uh, it's so, and those papers are in the public domain. All right? so, but we are trying them out, we are collecting data, and hopefully we can also put together some trials going forward. Uh, I guess, okay, it's almost two. Uh, I guess we have to wrap it up now. Uh, first, uh, I want to thank both uh, Dr. Shanti and Dr. Geary. Uh, I, I was Oh, just now, someone here and touched me and said, I should not introduce Dr. Geary. My apologies. Geary, don't get angry. Eh? Uh, Dr. Geary is the IT physician from Hospital Queen Elizabeth II uh, in Kota, in Nabali. Thank God you are very far away. We can't be angry. with you. But thank you both for, for coming in uh, to share this afternoon with us. Um, especially the Sungai Ebolo team, uh, they are still in full attendance. Dr. C, nice to see you. And Kala, like as usual, it's not so nice to see me in hiding somewhere. Thank you. Um, uh, now, uh, I hope this has been useful. Uh, I know we couldn't answer all the questions and for that I apologise. Uh, it shows that looking at the number of questions we have daily, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, still. So I hope that we have benefited something from this and I hope uh, we will see you again in subsequent weeks on, on different aspects of COVID-19. So thank you very much, take care, stay safe everyone. Bye.